good morning. Let me say that it is a privilege and a great honor for me to be here with you um, on this morning. I uh, am always humbled when I am invited and given the opportunity to speak to those who lead the church, who serve the church, and uh, it's an opportunity that I don't take lightly. And one of the things that I always pray is that God will deliver me from any desires to impress or entertain my fellow pastors, but instead that he will grant me uh, both humility and a shepherd's heart to shepherd the shepherds because we don't, we don't get that often. Amen? And so that's my desire here today. As we talk about this, this theme of abiding and abiding in Christ, I, I, I want to say some things about that, and I want to talk about it from an angle, from a perspective um, that, that may be different or unusual for us. I hope it's not. I hope we, I hope we don't just think about abiding in Christ individualistically. I hope we don't think about abiding in Christ as, as just about what I do when I am alone. Because what I want to address today is the idea of our worship being a means by which we encourage abiding in Christ. And a means by which we give an example of abiding in Christ. That our worship would be Christ-centered. That our desire would be that we would make much of Christ and that those who gather with us would have an opportunity each Lord's Day to have an experience and an encounter wherein they abide in Christ and see what that means, see what that looks like. And and I'm afraid, and and I don't want this to, to, to be heard the wrong way or received the wrong way, but there, there's, there's trends among us. And as Southern Baptists, we talk all the time, and, and we should, about winning the lost. Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But I think some of that has affected the way we view our worship. As though our worship services primarily exist as a means by which we win the lost. And I want to say that that's not true. Worship's worship's not for lost people. Amen. God bless them and we welcome them. And we want lost people to experience worship. But that's not what lost people are experiencing today. Lost people are experiencing a presentation designed to manipulate their emotions and get them to make a decision. That's different than worship that abides and makes much of Christ. Now, let me be clear. We must evangelize. We must plant churches. And I'm not a a big, you know, give my resume type guy. But let me just help you understand where I'm coming from on this so that you don't hear me coming across as some guy 
who's saying, you know, we, we ought not be passionate about souls and we ought not be passionate about planting churches and so on and so forth. Our, our church is six and a half years old. We planted our church six and a half years ago. Um, we planted our church without any aid from the convention or from our association. The first time our association or the convention heard from our church, they got a check. They didn't send one. Amen. And they've never sent us one. Just before our fourth birthday, two and a half years ago, uh, our church had been blessed and we had grown and we had seen people come to faith. And as we had been blessed and we had grown, we had also trained men with a view towards sending them out as church planters. These men had not been trained in seminary. They had been trained in our church for three years. And we took two of them and 80 people and sent them 35 miles north to plant another church. And the first time our association or the convention heard from that church, they got a check. We planted that church with our funds. We're six and a half years old. In those six and a half years, we have given on average between 35 and 40% of our budget to missions and benevolence. So as I say this, understand that I'm not talking to you as a man who is unconcerned about planting churches to reach the world for the cause of Christ. Amen? But when we plant churches, what are we planting? We're planting gospel outposts, yes. But we're planting houses of worship where people come and meet the great God of the universe and see a picture of what it means to abide in Christ. And I don't believe that there is at all a conflict between worship that is God-honoring, biblical, Christ-centered, not man-centered, Christ-centered, not lost people-centered. Our worship is not lost people-centered. It is not lost people-centered. Let me say again, our worship is not lost people-centered because we believe that if it were, it would be idolatry. Worship is only to be centered on God. And we don't try to alienate lost people. We don't try to confuse them or trick them. But when we worship, it is gospel-centered, Christ-centered, God-centered, not man-centered, and not lost people-centered. And the result is incredibly evangelistic. How so? Well, let me see if I can explain that to you from a biblical theological perspective. Because we see a picture of it in Revelation chapter 1. Turn with me there to Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. And here in Revelation 1, 5, we see a picture really of a theology of worship that is Christ-centered and God-centered and cross-centered and not man-centered. And yet, and yet if we think this way theologically, is evangelistic in a number of different ways. Revelation chapter 1, it's the oxygen. You got to breathe to talk, you know? Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. We'll look at verses 4 through 7. 
John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We'll, we'll stop there. That passage of scripture gives us an incredible foundation for our theology of worship, for what it means for Christ to be worthy of worship and for what it means for us to be worthy of worship. And I believe it gives us a picture that if we take it seriously as churches and frame and shape our gatherings around it would give us a picture of abiding in Christ corporately, but not at the expense of being evangelistic when individuals come into our midst who do not know our God. First, we see here in this passage that Christ is worthy of worship because of who he is, and particularly because he is God. And so the deity of Christ is upheld. And I believe when we gather to worship, we need to be very clear about the deity of Christ. It amazes me. Sometimes when you, when you think about the way we worship and you think about some of the things that we do in our worship, some of the things that we sing in our worship, you know, some of the Jesus is my boyfriend music, um, we, we get a whole lot about Jesus, but not much that makes a theological statement about the deity of Christ. People should not be able to come into our worship. Believers, non-believers should not be able to come into our worship and walk away wondering whether or not we believe Jesus is God. Look at the text here, beginning of verse 4. John to the seven churches in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him. Now, let me give you this before we go forward. You know that there are numbers in Revelation that are very important. Among those numbers that are very important in Revelation, there are two of them that are very important in this passage. There is the number seven, which is that, that picture of something that is complete. Seven, the number of completion. And we know that there's another number, three and a half. What is three and a half? Three and a half is a broken seven. Three and a half is something that is stopped before it comes to completion. But then there's that number three. That number three is a picture of God and his deity. But it is also something more. That number three is the rhythm. I like to call it the Revelation waltz. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Revelation is one of the easiest books in the Bible to memorize. Now, we don't do it because we're scared and we think it's all confusing and all that sort of stuff. But one of the reasons it's so easy to memorize is because of the pattern in the book. This one, two, three, one, two, three. You see so many things in threes. So sometimes that number three is used as a direct reference to God and a picture of God himself. But other times it's just part of this sort of rhythm of the letter. Look at this again. Let's look at this again. John to the seven churches in Asia, grace to you and peace from, let me give you this here. Peace from whom? Peace from him who was and is and is to come. That's a three within a three. Because it's going to be peace from one, two, three. But it's peace, first of all, from him who is and was and is to come. 
Look at the second one. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, there's the number seven within a three, and from Jesus Christ. Uh, by the way, who's Jesus Christ? Uh, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Look at the next part of it. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Over and over and over again here in this letter. This first three, I do believe though, is used not just for the rhythm of the letter, but to point to the deity of Christ. Why? Because we have here an inverted Trinitarian formula. One of the questions that is often asked here about this first paragraph is, what are the the seven spirits before the throne of God? Where there's throne room language here, so the apostle is trying to paint a picture for us of worship happening before the throne of God. Now, we'll get a full Lord picture of that in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. But right now, there's a picture of this throne room. Well, throne room and seven, that's a lampstand. This lampstand that is fueled by oil. So we have him who was and is and is to come. That's the Father. We know the third one is Jesus, who's the second person of the Trinity. But there is someone before the throne. It's the seven spirits of God. I believe it's a a reference to the Holy Spirit. The completeness of the Spirit of God. A picture of this seven-pronged lampstand that is fueled by oil which is a picture of what? The Spirit of God. So a picture of the Father and of the Spirit and of the Son. In other words, the triune God. So Christ, first and foremost, is worthy of our worship. Notice it's throne room language, worship in the throne room. Christ is worthy of our worship because he is God. His deity makes him worthy of our worship. Folks, so much of what we do in worship, and we're going to get to some of that, God has been good to us. And when we worship God, we need to remember that God has been good to us. But first and foremost, Christ is worthy of our worship simply because of who he is. In other words, this is him being intrinsically and objectively worthy of worship regardless of our experience. He is worthy of your worship. You owe him your worship because of who he is. Yeah, well, you know, I just don't feel like he loves me. I don't feel like he's done anything for me. I don't feel like he's, well, you're wrong about that. But even if you were right, you would owe him worship. Well, I just don't like that. Yeah, really? You don't? But if the president walks into the room, like him or not, you stand up and you show honor to whom honor is due. And you refer to him as Mr. President. And he gets the chief seat in the room. And whatever else is going on, we stop so that he can say his piece. Do we not? Just because of who he is. Christ is God. God wrapped in flesh. He is worthy of our worship simply because of who he is. And we need to make much of him simply because of who he is. Not just because of stuff, but because he's God. And because he's worthy. And because it's owed to him. But even beyond that, as if that weren't enough. Look at what it says. 
and from Jesus Christ, who is he? Three things, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This reference to him as a faithful witness, I believe, goes back to, uh, for example, Isaiah 65 and this picture of the faithful witness, this picture of Israel. I believe that theologically Christ is true and faithful Israel. I believe that the New Testament makes that very clear. And this is just one example of using this reference to Christ as the faithful witness. This idea of him as the faithful witness is a reference to the fact that he is true. He can only be faithful. And he is faithful even unto the point of death. This is not new. For example, Matthew gives us this picture of Christ as faithful Israel. And for the most part, we miss it. But I want you to notice something. Just take a short journey with me, if you will. We arrive at the New Testament. And when we arrive at the opening of the New Testament, what do we start with? We start in Matthew chapter 1 with a genealogy. Why do we get a genealogy? Well, because the first proclamation of the gospel takes place in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And what we're told in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is that the promised seed, the seed of the woman, is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, he's going to be bruised in the heel in the process. But the question from that point on is, who is the promised seed? Where do we find the promised seed? And so after that, the next chapter, what do we have? A murder. Promise seed gone. Seed of the serpent, Cain, killed seed of the woman, Abel. That's okay, because Seth is born. Then there are 10 generations from Seth to Noah. Promise seed is preserved. Promise seed is preserved all the way through Genesis, through the patriarchs. And then we run into a little difficulty in Exodus, but God continues to preserve the promised seed all the way up through the point where the promised seed becomes the nation of Israel. And through that nation, we have Jesus Christ who is announced in Matthew chapter 1 as the one who was promised in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. So in Matthew 1, we see him as the promised seed. Well, in Matthew chapter 2, what happens? In Matthew chapter 2, after the announcement of the promised seed, which goes back to Genesis chapter 3, in Matthew chapter 2, Herod goes out to kill all the male children under a certain age. Well, that's what happened to Israel in Exodus, the very next book in the Bible. So now not only is Jesus the promised seed, but he is the preserved nation who is not killed by the king who wants to destroy the male children. Well, what happens to Israel after they come out of Egypt? Well, they go through the waters and the waters close on their enemies. Peter says that's a picture of baptism. Huh, Matthew chapter three, what happens to Jesus? He's baptized. Exodus. What happens in chapter 4? Well, in chapter 4, he's tempted. Not just any temptation, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. So now we see him as the faithful Adam. The first Adam failed because of lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life when he's tempted by the serpent. The last Adam does not. But wait, there's more. Now he goes to a mountain and begins to say, you have heard it said to you, but I say, now he's the true lawgiver. That's Moses at Sinai all over again. What is Matthew telling us? By the way, after the Sermon on the Mount, he goes and begins to heal the sick and cast out demons. That's a picture of conquest. But the conquest that we find in Joshua is never complete. The conquest that we find in Jesus is complete. Where does it all end? It ends with Jesus as the suffering servant who takes upon himself the sins of the people of God. 
He is the faithful witness. And he is worthy of our worship because he's the faithful witness. Not only that, he's the faithful witness. And the idea of the faithful witness means that you're faithful even unto death. In the book of Revelation, again and again and again, there is a reference to martyrdom. And there is this idea of the martyrs who cry out to God, how long before we are vindicated? But they are faithful unto death. And we as believers are called in Revelation to be faithful even unto death. Christ is the faithful witness, which means he was faithful all the way unto death. And what's the very next identifier? He's the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead. Faithful witness means you're faithful until you die. Firstborn from the dead means death can't hold you. He is the resurrected one. But wait a minute. The text says not just that he was resurrected from the dead, but that he's the firstborn from the dead, which means that there are others who are going to rise after him in the same way he rose. So now Christ is worthy of our worship because he's God. He's worthy of our worship because he's the faithful witness. And he's worthy of our worship because he and only he gives us hope that there is life beyond this life. We worship him because of the hope that he brings. Do we reference Christ as the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead when we gather together to worship? Or is it just Jesus is my homeboy? Please tell me it's more than that. Please tell me that it's not just about how well our songs fit together. Please tell me that it's not just about how well we sing or how loud we sing or how much we experience emotional catharsis. Please tell me that we gather together to remind ourselves of whom it is in which we abide. That he's God. That he's faithful. That he died and he rose again. We must worship the resurrected Christ. And then there's the final one. Look at this last one. And the ruler of kings on earth. Amen. He's the ruler of kings on earth. Please don't fret about this upcoming election. Please don't. All this stuff. This is the most important election in the history of our lives. That's what they said last time. <laughs> if we lose this election, it's all over. Newsflash. I worship the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. The most important election that ever took place took place before time. Because God is not running for God. He was the only one around when the votes were cast, and there's never going to be a recount. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. Most important election is the doctrine of election. Amen? That's the most important thing. Christ is the King. He says he's the King of all the kings on the earth. Think about the context here. He's writing these letters to people who are under persecution. He's on the island of Patmos because he's been sent away for his proclamation of the gospel. Other people are there being tortured and killed 
being wiped out completely. And he says to them, we worship Christ, who is God, who is the faithful witness, who was the firstborn from the dead. He was faithful to death. Don't you be afraid to be faithful unto death because Christ rose and he's the firstborn from the dead. You too will rise. What's the worst that they can do to you? They can kill you. But here's what you need to know. If they do, it will be under the sovereign hand of Almighty God who uses your death to bring glory to his name. Because Christ is the king of all the kings on the earth. We worship Christ and no other. And we worship him because of who he is. But then... And that's enough. Let me, just, let me just back up for a minute here, okay? And just say, I could back up here and I could, I, could, I could put my hands, you know, in my pocket and I could be through and we could just go home right now. And if we gathered together and we worship and we just pointed to these truths that we worship Christ and he is God, that we worship Christ, he is the faithful witness, faithful even under death. We worship Christ after being faithful under death, he was resurrected from the dead. And he's the firstborn from the dead. So we have hope of resurrection. We worship Christ and he's the king of all the kings on the earth. We could, we could have benediction right then, right there, and leave. But God's not like that. There's more. The next phrase to him who loves us. Jesus, Jesus, I worship you because, because you're God and you're worthy and I worship you because you're a faithful witness and I worship you because you're the firstborn from the dead and I have hope. And I worship you because you're the king and you have all authority and you have all power. And right there in the midst of that, when we are offering him that worship that is due to him, he looks down and he whispers, I love you. I love you. He's worthy regardless but the worthy one says, I love you. To him who loves us and what? Has freed us from our sins by his blood. Greater love has no man than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. God has demonstrated his love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He freed us from our sins by his blood. Christ is worthy of our worship because he freed us from our sins by his blood. Now there's so much there. First of all, the fact that we are sinners. And how, how much, again, the idea that we would come together and that we would worship. And that as part of our worship, we would not emphasize the fact that we are sinners before a righteous and wrathful God who deserved death and hell. And that Christ, the worthy one, the faithful witness, was faithful unto death, not the death that he owed to God, but the death that you owed to God. 
So not only was he the faithful witness who died and rose again from the dead, but he died because of my sin. Because of your sin. But he died to free us from our sins. We are enslaved to sin. And Christ died that we might be free from sin. Do you hear that? What what on earth is more worthy of worship than that? I was a slave and he made me free. He freed me from my sin, from my own wretchedness and my own wickedness. He freed me from myself. He freed me from the wrath of God. I'm free because Christ died and shed his blood on my behalf. And then look at the final piece. And made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Folks, Christ makes us worthy of worship. He made us a kingdom of priests unto his Father. Listen to this in 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning of verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, there's that word, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What makes me worthy of worship? See, when I said lost people can't worship, I'm I'm not just making a statement. They're not worthy to worship. You know what makes you worthy of worship? You know what makes your worship acceptable? Christ makes your worship acceptable. Not just anybody could go into the temple. Not just anybody could come before God. Even priests, if they came before unworthily, were killed. But in Christ, you and I are made worthy to worship God Your offering of worship to God is made acceptable by God the Son, who is the faithful witness, faithful all the way unto death, the firstborn from the dead, the king of all the kings of the earth. Because he loved you and freed you from your sin, he has cleansed you and made you worthy to come before his Father, spotless. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him and in order that our worship might be made worthy. How dare we reduce worship to an emotional experience? It's emotion wrong. I, I, I hope not. <laughs> I, I hope, I hope you, know, you believe me when I say that's not my point. But when that's our goal, What is your goal when you gather together for worship? Ultimately, why why have we come? Have we come so that people could be entertained in hopes that they'll come back? Have we come so that by some chance we can be creative enough that lost people 
We'll make a decision. Have we, have we come so that somehow, in some way, the people out there that we deem worthy or in need of being reached will be reached because of our abilities? Is that why we gather? Or do we gather every Lord's Day because Christ is worthy and has made us worthy? Do we gather to remind ourselves and all those gathered with us that he is God? That he's the faithful witness who was faithful even to the point of death. But that he was resurrected again. And that he's the firstborn from the dead and gives us hope as we face the last enemy, death. That he's the king of all the kings on the earth and that no one can thwart his worship. Do we gather to remind ourselves that this one who is so worthy loves us? And that we're not who we used to be because he freed us from our sins. And that the only reason that we're able to do this in any meaningful way is because he has transformed us into a kingdom of priests who are now able to offer acceptable sacrifices to God. I don't know about you, I need to abide in that week by week by week. I don't need somebody to tell me how good I am. What I'm worth. How important I am. I don't need that. You know why? Because I'm so arrogant and prideful that you couldn't make me think more of myself. And you are too. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Folks, we don't need people to tell us that we're worth something. That's what gets us out of bed in the morning. You know what we need to be told? There is one who is worthy, and he ain't you. And you're here for him, not for you. Now, here's the question. How does this, and I hope we see how this is a picture of abiding in Christ as we gather together as a body to worship. But how is this evangelistic? What is evangelism? But the faithful proclamation of the gospel with a view toward God using that proclamation, which is the power of God unto salvation. What did we just say here? Christ is worthy of our worship because of the gospel. This is gospel worship. Christ is God. He's the faithful witness, and you're not. He was faithful unto death, and it was yours, not his. He rose from the dead. You're going to die. The question is, will you rise as he did or rise to eternal destruction? 
He's the king of all the kings on the earth. You want to be one. He loves us. You think you're worthy of it, but you're not. And because of that, you can't appreciate it. He freed us from our sins. The only way you'll ever appreciate that is to know that you're a sinner. And I'm reminding you here by telling you what Christ has done in freeing us from our sins, that you are a sinner who needs to be freed from his or her sins, and that if you have not, it is incumbent upon you to bow the knee to the king of all kings. He has made us a kingdom of priests who can offer acceptable worship. You're welcome here, regardless of whether or not you know Christ, but here's something, and it may not feel great, Your worship is completely and utterly unacceptable unless and until you've been freed from your sins by the one whom we worship. That is evangelistic worship. Not, you're so special that God is just pining away because his life is just incomplete unless you come to him. Help you if you believe that. God doesn't need you. And he's going to prove it because one day you're going to die and the earth is going to keep on rotating at the same speed. Amen. But here's the beauty in that. The God who doesn't need me is the one who sends the second person of the Trinity as the faithful witness who is faithful unto death rises again on the third day with all authority in heaven and earth in his hand. Do you remember that? The king of all kings who doesn't need me but loves me. Freed me from my sins at the greatest of all costs and makes me worthy to worship him. My prayer is that as we gather on this next Lord's Day and every Lord's Day thereafter, that these are the biblical and theological underpinnings of our worship. Not what some cultural guru told you works for a certain demographic. This that has remained true and will remain true in all places, among all people, for all time, until he comes to redeem and be reunited with his bride for whom he laid down his life. In the meantime, we worship him in anxious anticipation. Let's pray. Father, It is our desire that we might abide in Christ and that we might do so individually and corporately. Grant by your grace that we would make much of Christ. That we might abide in his love. That we might be reminded of his love again and again and again by being reminded of who he is. By being reminded of our own sin. By being reminded of how he has dealt with our sin on the cross. And by being reminded of how That makes us worthy to worship him. Grant by your grace that those things might cause us to abide in his love. 
and that those of us who shepherd flocks would shepherd them in this abiding, would model this abiding, and would miss no opportunity to do so. Thank you for pointing us again to the one who is worthy. It is in his name that we pray. And all God's people said,